just read about our guest to you. Shane is from Charleston, South Carolina, has been in full-time ministry for over 20 years. He began full-time ministry as a youth pastor, small church. Since that time, Shane has, multi has held multiple pastoral positions in various sized churches. Shane now ministers full-time in America, Europe, South Africa, Australia, uh, and New Zealand with degrees in both clinical psychology and theology. Scary. Shane is known for being an informative, brilliant, he put that in there, and humorous communicator. Shane is mentored by a pastor, uh, by a pastor with rabbinical training and teaches the context of the scriptures from the Hebraic perspective. This perspective helps people to see God's word in a completely new way and leads them into a more intimate relationship with the Messiah. All that said, it's going to get really scary in here right now. That's what that means. It's going to go like, woo! So you got to put on your thinking caps today. Because uh, after, after Tuesday night's ministry school, uh, one of our wonderful church uh, partners and school uh, uh, students walks up to me and says, Pastor Troy, you got to get on a whole other level. I said, the Bible says that there are diversities of gifts, and God didn't give me the one he's got. That's all there is to that. So I got my gift. He's got his. So we're going to pull on his gift today, Generations Church. Generations Church, Temecula, get ready to pull on his gift today. Let's give a world welcome to our host today, our guest speaker today, Shane Willard from everywhere. All right, good morning, everybody. You can be seated. If you're the type likes following an actual Bible, Ezekiel 18, we're going to get there in a second. If not, we're going to, it's going to pop up on the slides. It's so good to be back here with my friends Troy and Jennifer Shadid and the team. Uh, they're the real deal. I'm glad you're a part uh, of what they're doing. Um, on your way out today, um, there is a table set up out there with all of our resources, um, CDs, DVDs, USBs, direct downloads. Um, if you're wondering why we do that, it's because we make a lot of money from it. And the reason we do that is because we live with a conviction that we're not simply called to go to heaven when we die. We're called to bring heaven to every place we see hell here. So uh, 100% of everything we make from that, we give to the poor and the afflicted. We have three orphanages in China that look after children with mental disabilities, two in Hinyang, one in Changsha. We also have a rescue home in Cape Town that gets girls out of sex trafficking, off drugs, high school educated, and job trained so we can break the cycle of poverty in the Cape Town Flats, all right? So um, you can come out there. Myself and Harmony will be out there um, helping you um, with that. All right, so let's get right into this. I'm going to open up. I get to open the Bible today, which I take very seriously. Um, when, you, when you open a scripture, you want to at least ask two questions. One, what happened? The other question, what's happening in me right now because of what happened, all right? And so I'm going to read a passage that's over 3,000 years old. When you read a passage that's over 3,000 years old, you have to consider how they took it at the time. It is almost impossible to think that we would still be reading it the same way they took it, given 3,000 years of language development, right? And so, and so he's going to use some words in here that are, frankly, terrifying. Um, so I want to stop before I read it, because if you've been walking with God for a while, right? I, I'm not worried about you. But if you're, like, seeking, if you're, like, here today, and you're seeking, and you're, like, not sure, and, or if you're watching online, right, and, and you're, you're just sort of, I'm not ready to go to church, but I'm going to check this thing out. I, I, I don't want to, um, I don't want to read something that would, quite frankly, be terrifying. He's going to say things like death, die, live, life. But he is using it in a 3,000-year-old prophetic sense. He's not talking about literally dying. So he's going, to, he's going to say things like the soul that sins will die, right? Now, now, if you read that literally, that sounds like if you make a mistake, you're going to die, right? And it's not talking about that at all. Nor especially not, it's not talking about going to hell. And it's not talking about going to heaven. 
It's talking about life and death or light and dark. In, in, the, in the Old Testament, these are metaphors about a way of living that leads to wholeness or to disrepair. So if somebody was living in death, they were going into disrepair. If someone was living in life, they were heading towards wholeness. And in Scripture, it's presented as a choice. Life or death, choose life that you might live. Obviously not literal. Obviously, no one chooses when they live, no one chooses when they die. This is talking about a realm of living, whether it's be called life or death or light or dark. Now, there's this guy named Ezekiel, and he's writing to Jewish slaves in Babylon, and he's trying to encourage them um, because they've lost everything and they're enslaved. And he does so by slapping them around a little bit. So I, I, wanna, um, <clears throat> I want to speak into your series on what have I done with my keys. Um, and I want to talk to you about two keys this morning. The key of taking responsibility and the key of honor. And how they're actually, we're going to find, are both the same thing. So this is Ezekiel 18, verse 1. Here it comes. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, What do you people, keep going, what do you people mean by quoting this proverb about the land of Israel? The parents eat sour grapes, and now as the children's teeth are set on edge. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, you will no longer quote this proverb in Israel. The father eats sour grapes, and now the children's teeth are set on edge. I don't want to ever hear that out of your mouth ever again. Now, this leads to two questions. One, what does this proverb mean? And two, why is God so apparently ticked off about it? Now, to understand this, we have to understand a brief history of Israel. So, <clears throat> here is the entire history of Israel in two minutes. You're going to have to really pay close attention. Here it comes. There was a guy named Abraham and a son named Isaac who had a son named Jacob who had 12 sons. And 11 of those 12 sons sold one of their brothers into slavery only to need him to save their sorry rear ends later because they were in a famine. So the entire family ends up moving to Egypt. And then they started having babies. And those babies had babies and babies and babies and babies. And then there was more babies and 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 babies upon babies upon babies until this family started overpopulating Egypt. This panicked the Pharaoh. And so what he did is he did the only reasonable thing he thought he could do, and that is enslave this group of people. 430 years later, God raises up a guy named Moses to get this family out of slavery into freedom by walking them through the Red Sea. And he gave them a mandate. I want you to create a nation that will maintain justice and righteousness to the poor and show the whole world what I look like. And remember, I'm a slave liberator. This, in short, turned out terribly. By the third king, a guy named Solomon, this is what it says. And this is the account of the slave labor that Solomon forced to build the temple to the Lord. So if you're paying attention, a guy that comes from a lineage of freed slaves is now forcing slaves to build the temple to honor the God who frees the slaves. And he failed to see the irony in that. So this group ends up back in slavery in a place called Babylon under the authority of Nebuchadnezzar. And who do they blame for their slavery? They blame Solomon. So much so that they wiped his name out of the historical record for over 200 years, simply referring to him as David's son. David's son. David's son. Why? Because if you want someone to forget about somebody, you just make them nameless. This is why if you've ever went through a divorce, you never call your ex by their name, you refer to them as my ex or the children's father. That's how you do it. Now, <clears throat> David's son. And they said, because David's son failed, we are where we are, which is why the prophets, when they were prophesying to people in Babylon, they never say Solomon's name. They simply say David's son. And they say, take heart, for God will bring a new son of David who will maintain justice and righteousness to the poor. 
Fast forward to Jesus. They call him everything. Jesus Christ. Jesus our Savior. Jesus our King. Rabbi Jesus. Jesus Son of God. Jesus Son of Man. But the poor and the afflicted had one name for him. Jesus Son of David. Have mercy on me. In other words, are you the new son of David that the prophets prophesied about from old? Because if that's you, you're here for the poor and the afflicted. And newsflash, I'm poor. Which means you're here for me <clears throat> now back to Babylon so this generation is enslaved and they're blaming David's son and what do you do when you're enslaved to cope well you write poems songs plays Great suffering is not best explained in literal line items. It's best explained in plays about why suffering happens and things like this. And they come up with a proverb, a saying to help them feel better. It's my father that ate sour grapes and that's why my teeth are set on edge. Solomon failed and that's why I am the way I am. Now, if you lost me in any of that, come back now. Here's what's happening in this story. The current generation is blaming the previous generation for why they are the way they are. Because we've never heard that before. <laughs> the least favorite part of being a pastor is the times, other than boring theological discussions, are the times where you have to occasionally confront horrendous behavior. So occasionally, we hate doing it, but we have to. Occasionally, we have to confront someone behaving poorly, and it, it's horrible. And the number of times we've heard it said something like this, Sir, cut it out. You're fixing to lose everything that's important to you. Seriously, you got to get your crap together, right? And the guy goes, I know, I know. But if you knew what my dad was like, you would know why I am the way I am, right? Or we're like, ma'am, seriously, cut it out. You're jealous, critical, cantankerous, possessive, and quite frankly, horrible. We don't want to be the one to tell you this, but your husband is secretly praying for a comet to come to earth to bring him sweet relief from you. And she says, I know, I know. But if you just knew what my mom was like, you would know why I am the way I am. My mom was critical, cantankerous, and horrible, so I'm critical, cantankerous, and horrible. My dad was a drunk, so I'm a drunk. My parents were bad with money, that's why I'm bad with money. My father ate sour grapes, and that's why my teeth are set on edge. And look, I have a master's degree in clinical psychology. If you sit with me and answer my questions for an hour, honestly, I can tell you why you are the way you are. That's the easiest part of counseling. It's figuring out why someone is the way they are. That's not hard. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, sure. Your mom was horrible. You're horrible. I get it. I get it. If only 50% of what you're telling me about your mom is true, she's horrible. And that means you're horrible. I get it. Yep, your dad, horrible. I see it. Yep, obviously. Your dad was horrible. You're horrible. Everyone can see. It's not hard to see. Ray Charles can see why you are the way you are. <laughs> this is not difficult to see. The problem is, you're 40. 
And at what point do you draw a line in the sand to say just because my father ate sour grapes doesn't mean I have to perpetuate that nonsense into eternity? It is not your parents' fault for why you are the way you are, unless you're eight. If you're eight, it is definitely their fault. If you're 40, time to change something. You might think, no, Shane, you understand, man, you understand. My parents had issues. Really? Did they? Let me ask you something about your parents. Were they a man and a woman trying to live together? Then there's going to be issues. Why? Because marriage is hard and complex. It's sort of ridiculous. Like marriage is so complex, the Bible can't even agree on what to say about it. Is the Bible for or against marriage? It depends on who you read. Solomon was really for it. Solomon says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. Solomon's like, marriage, let's do it. A lot. Paul said, he who marries does not sin, but they've signed up for a life of pain. <laughs> Marriage is difficult, man. And, and it's getting more difficult. Here, and it's not, it's not hard. It's not a deep theological reason why marriage is getting more difficult. It's because we're living longer. Listen, in Jesus' day, they died at 32. When you died at 32, till death do us part was more doable. Now you have to live with them to 84. Yeah. People have issues because of preference. Like, even if you marry someone who's basically good-hearted and basically mentally healthy, it's still difficult because of preference. Now, you marry a psychopath, what would you like me to do? But women prefer different things than men, even at a very elemental level, like smells. Women, for, women prefer sweet-smelling things. Flowers, perfume, candles. You hand a woman a bouquet of flowers, every, she's going to sniff it. You know, you hand a man a bouquet of flowers, all he smells is 70 bucks. That's what that costs, right? <clears throat> Two women can go to a candle shop, sniff wax for an hour, and call that fun. You'll never see two men doing that. Imagine that. Imagine walking by a candle shop, two men in there. Hey, Billy, check that out. That's that, that's that new white lilac scent, man. That is something special. Woo no way. Why? Because men prefer stinky things. Nothing funnier to a group of men than when something stinky happens. That's hilarious. Women find that disgusting, but it's in our DNA. We love stinky stuff. Like, even if you watch a man take off his dirty clothes from work, right? And, he, and even if you train him to put it in the hamper, you know, so he puts it in the hamper. He, he'll end with his socks. But he takes his socks off, right? I promise you every man in this room has done this. Here's what they'll do just before they drop it in. They'll. It's like we prove we work, right? And I promise 
if it doesn't smell bad enough, we'll be like, I think I can get one more wear out of this right now. I can tell you that. <clears throat> Your parents had issues? Of course they did. You say, Shane, you understand. My dad had issues. Really? Your dad had issues? Of course your dad had issues. Everybody's dad has issues. My dad has issues. And I want to be clear about this. My dad's a good guy. My dad was up at 4.30 this morning praying for this church service. And he didn't tell me. I just know. That's what he does. Every, every morning at 4.30, he prays for me. Every morning. And he's a real early bird that way, you know. Like when I was a kid, he got up at 5.45 to pray at 6. Then 5.30. Then 5 to pray at 5.15. Now he gets up at 4.15 to pray at 4.30, you know. I was talking to him the other day. I was like, Dad, what's up? He said, you know, I'm thinking about getting up at 4. Pray at 4.15. I said, Dad, if you live 10 more years, you're going to have to eat breakfast the night before. This is ridiculous. My dad had issues. My dad's a good guy. But one of his issues, he loved to scare us. And I, he, he found that hilarious. And I'm not talking about a mild boo. I'm talking about terrify a six-year-old. Like, he decided to break me one time. I, I've never been easy to get up in the morning. So I'd, he, he decided, I, mom would come up and wake me up and sit me on the side of the bed, and then I'd fall back asleep. He decided to break me of that. And his plan to break me of that was to hide under my bed. I was six. I, th I think the boogeyman lives under there anyway. My dad, just as I fall back asleep, reached out and grabbed my feet, you know. Your dad had issues? <clears throat> my dad also liked to embarrass us. He thought it was hilarious. Like he was taking me to, to church one time for Bible camp, you know. Like this is something we do in the South. We don't really do it here. But we take a week and go to Bible camp, you know. You know it's 105 13-year-olds. Dad pulls up. He says, Shane, I love you. I believe in you. I'm going to pray for you every day. God will touch your life, you know. I was like, love you too, Dad. See you later. He's like, hang on. Where's my kiss? I was like, Dad, not here. I mean, like, are you not paying attention to the hook? He goes, all right. So I get out, hand my bag to the bus driver, get on the bus. Second from the last row, 57 passenger school bus. We're fixing to leave. I look up, and to my horror, my father had decided to get on the bus. It was 105 degrees. He had his shorts pulled up to here. He had his socks pulled up to here. And he got on the bus with a limp. And he grabbed the microphone of the bus and he said, Excuse me, everybody. This bus isn't leaving until my Shaney Wayne, he comes up here and gives me a kiss. The whole bus starts chanting, Kiss him. Your dad had issues. Of course your dad had issues. Everybody's dad, the, the question isn't whose parents had issues. Can we all agree together all of our parents had issues, right? The question is, is are we predetermined to perpetuate whatever is death into the, into, into the future? Or, or can we be empowered by eviscerating and eliminating death and perpetuating life? See, see the, worst, the worst is when we organize things by what is right and what is wrong. What's right and what's wrong, that'll destroy your life. Because there's a lot of things that aren't wrong, but they're not wise, okay? Or, or worse, what is normal? What we think normal is, is formed in our brain before the age of eight from our family of origin. And sometimes that's helpful, like bathing every day. But if your family got drunk on the weekend, and you think everybody does that, that's normal, but it's not helpful. The question is not what is normal, it is what is life and what is death. 
Now watch this next scripture. This is just the next verse. Watch what, he, what he's saying here is so profound. This is verse 4. Watch what he says. For everyone belongs to me. I can read that in Hebrew and I can tell you the word there is everyone. <laughs> Literally anything drawing breath belongs to God. In, in other words, any discussion about who belongs to God and who doesn't, what are you talking about? Do they live in God's world? Yes. Are they held together by God's name? Yes. Everyone belongs to me. The father as well as the son. Both alike belong to me. But the one who sins is the one that will die. See, Ezekiel is addressing something. They had two beliefs back then that we don't, we don't have today. Okay? They're, the first one was they believed God was for certain people and against others. Now, we would never think that. Right? They thought God was for certain people and against others. And if you watch someone's life being destroyed, they thought it was because God was against that person before that person. And they're being confronted because in this situation, it appears like the evil people are winning. Right? right. So they, they, this is a problem. So they thought God was for certain people and against others. The second thought that they had that we would never think is that it was possible for God to be destroying someone's life because of the sins of his great-grandfather. Right? So they thought it was possible for someone's life to be destroyed by God because of the sins of someone that's been dead for 50 years. And that person felt doomed. Now, we would never think that. But that would be horrendous, right? But they actually believe that. So here's what he does. He goes through a very long explanation that I won't read. I'll just explain. Here's what he says. He says, suppose a righteous man gives birth to a wicked son. But then that wicked son gives birth to a righteous son. So you got a righteous grandson, a wicked father, and a righteous grandfather. And he simply asks the question, who inherits what from who? Does the wicked son inherit the righteousness? Or, or does the righteous grandson inherit the wickedness or the righteousness? Or who inherits what from who? And it, and it showed this huge hole in their belief system. And the answer is neither. And Ezekiel says, here's the truth. Every generation stands on their own two feet before God. And the ones that choose light and life get light and life. And the ones that choose death and darkness get death and darkness. But it has nothing to do with God not being for someone. And it has nothing to do with the sins of a great-grandfather. Now, this was revolutionary in Ezekiel's day. Now, watch his conclusion. This is verse 17. This is the conclusion of the matter. Watch, watch what he says. Ezekiel 18, verse 17. Here we go. He withholds his hand from mistreating the poor, and he takes no interest from profit from them. He keeps my laws and decrees. He will not die for his father's sin. He'll live. That's talking about the righteous grandson. But the father will die for his own sin. Because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what was wrong amongst his people. Yet you ask, why does the son not share the guilt of the father? Now, why would they ask that? Because that's what they were taught their whole life. They were taught the sons share the guilt of the father. Ezekiel's like, no. No. Every generation is going to stand on their own two feet here. Since the son has done what is just and right, and be careful to keep my decrees, he will live and not die. But the one who sins is the one that will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent. Nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. That's an amen on both sides of that. The righteousness of the righteous be credited to them, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. But if a wicked person turns away from the sins they're committing and keeps my decrees and does what is just and right, they'll live and not die. In other words, no matter how far down the road of death, darkness, and decrease you get, you're one decision from turning around and heading back into life, light, and increase. You're never too far... 
down a road of death that you can't turn around and begin to experience life. In other words, Ezekiel's saying if you're on the road to death, it's not because God doesn't like you. And it's not because of the sins of your father. It's not. It's because you're choosing to perpetuate death. And if you're choosing to perpetuate death, you could be empowered to turn around and head towards life. Right? But none of the offenses he's committed will be, will be held against him. Because, he, because of the righteous things he's done, he'll live. Do I take pleasure in the death of, of the wicked, declares the Lord? Am I not pleased when they turn around? In other words, God's not a God watching people destroy their lives and loving it. Like proving he was right about something. Like if you're on the road to death, God's going, get off, change lanes, do something, turn around. Something, right? But if a righteous person turns away, keep going. If a righteous person turns away from their, from their righteousness and commits sin and does the same detestable thing the wicked man does, will he live? No, none of the righteous things he's done will be remembered because of his unfaithfulness that he's guilty of. And because of the sins he's committed, he'll die. Like, now, once again, it's not talking about literal death, nor is this talking about heaven or hell. It's talking about life here. Here's what he's saying. If you're on the road to death, you have one choice. Turn around. If you're on the road to life, I love, this is so, this is such wisdom. He says good decisions don't work like savings accounts. You don't, if you make 20 years of good decisions, you don't get 20 years of bad decisions before you get back to even. Right? Like, if you got the best marriage in the room, and I hope you do. Okay? You're still one decision away from that thing getting wobbly. In, in other words, if you're on the road to death, turn around. If you're on the road to life, keep going. Every day, submit yourself to life and light and choose life. Right? Yet you say the way of the Lord is not just. Keep going. Yet you say the way of the Lord is not just. In other words, there were people saying, that doesn't sound right. That's not what we were taught our whole life. Because even when, when you're giving a story, even if it's a better narrative, if it's not what people were taught their whole life, they push back. And that's what's happening to Ezekiel. Yet you say the way of the Lord is not just. Here is, is it my way or your way that's unjust? Here's your way. <clears throat> your way is someone could be destroyed because of the sins of somebody who's been dead for 50 years. My way is every generation stands on their own two feet before God. Which one do you think sounds more fair? Right? Keep going. If a righteous person turns from their righteousness um, and, and commits sin, they'll die. Because the sins, they'll die. But if a wicked, keep going. If a wicked person turns away from that wickedness, he's committed and does what is just and right, he'll save his life. How is that not fair? If you're on the road to death, you turn around, you'll save your life. If you're on the road to life and you turn around, you enter into death. That, that, that is fair. Because they consider all the offenses they committed to turn away, they'll live and not die. Yet the Israelites say the way of the Lord's not just. Is it really? Is it my way that's unjust? Or is it, is it what you've been taught your whole life that's actually not fair? Um, therefore, you Israelites, I will judge you, each according to your own ways. Now that would have been unbelievably good news to tell someone that thought God would still be judging them because of the sins of their grandfather. To tell them, no, 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 you, you can stand on your own two feet and be empowered. That, is, that would have been like the gospel. Uh, repent, that just means turn around. Turn away from your offenses you've committed and, and sin won't be your downfall. Rid yourself of the offenses you've committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Notice that. Get rid of the behavior and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O people of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. Turn around and live. Now, that is my best effort at explaining what happened. So let's talk about something maybe more important, and that is what's happening in me right now because of it. 
Let's answer the so what question. Okay, first, all of us are formed by our history and heritage, okay? And let me be clear about this. That wasn't your fault, nor was it to your credit if you grew up well. If you had good parents, you should text them today and thank them for letting you start on third base. If you grew up in a destructive culture, that was not your fault. You did not deserve that. Because here's the problem, right? The problem with a message like this is that there's somebody in the room thinking something like this. Shane, good message, mildly entertaining, fairly funny. The history of Israel, two minutes, good job. But here's the thing. You stood on a stage and you said the worst things your father did. And they were hilarious. But if I stood up and talked about the worst things my mom did or the worst things my dad did, they would not be funny. As a matter of fact, I probably wouldn't be allowed to share it because it'd be too heavy. And this is why I hate church on Mother's Day and Father's Day. Someone who doesn't know me is going to stand on a stage and use the Bible to say, I should honor my father and mother. But if you knew what they did, you wouldn't be saying that. What do you say to me? Okay. Give me about five minutes, which is about what I have. And I think I can help you. First, I am so sorry. For whatever happened to you. It wasn't your fault. A six-year-old does not have space in their brain to handle adult emotions, to handle adult compound complex decision-making, to feel the stress that adults feel, and especially they don't have the capacity to deal with adult violence perpetrated on them by people three times their size. Okay? If that happened to you, I'm really sorry. I am. But the hope for your life is to honor your father and mother. And let me explain what I mean. The issue is not the word honor. The issue is our imagination of how we think honor works. In Hebrew culture, honor has nothing to do with what you say to somebody. It has everything to do with how you behave away from them. Now, you know this to be true. If you parent a teenager and that teenager says, Mom, Dad, I honor you, that would bless your heart. But what's more honoring is knowing they behave in a way that honors your values out there, right? Same with pastor. Pastor, I honor you. Yes, and you should. But what's more honoring to your pastors is that you're behaving in a way that honors the values of Generations Church out there, not in here. The same thing is true with honoring your father. To honor your father and mother has nothing to do with saying what they did was okay, with forgetting about it. It has nothing to do with letting them harm you over and over and over again. It has nothing to do with pretending there was nothing wrong with it. Honor has everything to do with doing an audit of what your family system taught you to be normal and choosing what is life and perpetuating it and choosing what is death and eradicating it. My dad's work ethic his prayer discipline, his generosity should go on. His love for scaring six-year-olds should die with him. Okay? 
And every, every situation will have that. Every situation will have that. To honor your father and mother simply means this, that we take an audit of what my family system taught me was normal. And we say, is my normal life or is my normal death? And we choose to eradicate death and perpetuate life. And here's what will happen. I travel the world. Occasionally, I get asked this. Shane, wow, you must come from a long line of educated preachers. Uh, no. My great-grandfather was illiterate. Actually, all four of my great-grandparents were illiterate. My great-grandfather was an illiterate moonshiner. If you don't know what that is, that's running illegal liquor across state lines. <laughs> he was illiterate. He made his living moonshining, and he was a member of the Ku Klux Klan. My great-grandfather was an illiterate moonshining racist. How do you get from a literate moonshining racist to a guy that travels the world telling all cultures about the love of Christ for them? How do you do that? Simple. My parents drew a line in the sand and said, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. Our children will go to school. Our children will read books. Our children will learn the ways of Jesus. And our children will not be racist because that's just stupid. And in one generation, they changed the family tree. And here's your choice today. Keys, keys are taking responsibility, owning it, this, naming it, that's death, and I'm empowered to choose life. And taking responsibility and perpetuating life is honor. Because what better way to honor my grandfather than for people to think he was an educated preacher today? That changes your family tree. And here's the thing, on a morning like today, you have a choice. You can be the people who change your family trees, or you can leave it to your children to do it. Why would you leave it to them? Because here's the thing, ma'am. Listen to me, ladies. If your son married a woman like you, would you be happy for him? Guys? If your daughter married a man like you, would you be happy for her? Because let me let you in on something. They're gonna. And it's not because of Oedipus. It's because they think you're normal. If you wouldn't be thrilled if your son married a woman like you, change something. If you wouldn't be thrilled if your daughter married a man like you, change something. Because they think you're normal. So let's take a second. Let's pray. Let's cancel the white noise of our week. Let's submit ourselves to the risen Christ. Why don't you just pray a prayer like this underneath your breath. Holy Spirit, give me the courage to see things different. The irresistible urge to respond to what I see. Why don't you pray a prayer like this if you're really brave. Holy Spirit, is there anything we're allowing in our family habits that are just normal because they've always been, but actually they're death? Would you give me the courage to change that? Maybe you're here today and you've never received Jesus. And you're like, I hear this term, receive Jesus. What does that even mean? Here's what it means. It means you're going to make a choice today to trust Jesus' version of your life story. Instead of the one you've been writing on your own. 
and you're going to trust that the story Jesus has written for your life is a better story. And you're going to put your faith and your trust in that. And you're going to connect your story with his story and then live his story from this day forward. And you could just do that. If you need a prayer to pray, you could say something like this. Lord Jesus, I'm going to trust today and put my faith in that your version of my life is better than the one I've been writing on my own. For the rest of us, maybe we can make a choice today to change our family tree. Because if you do, you'll be the hero of your family tree. And if you don't, one day, you'll look back on today and wish you had. Would you look this way? Thanks so much for being your guest this morning. You've been a great group of people to speak to. Thanks for laughing at my jokes. Thanks for taking it seriously. Um, I bless you to be people who don't just go to heaven when you die, but perpetuate life, light, and increase here, now, today. May you be brave enough to eradicate death and perpetuate life. May you be the heroes of your family tree. And may it never be said in this room ever again that it's my father that ate sour grapes. And that's why my teeth are set on edge. Live more profound than that. Grace and peace, everybody. God bless you.